Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Torah for the Earth audio essay. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and this week I will be addressing Parashat Vayechi, which means, and he lived. This is our 12th Torah reading for the year, and it is the last parashah in the book of Genesis. Vayechi is unique in that it is referred to as a closed section in a Torah scroll, Ordinarily, each parashah is separated from the previous reading by a new line, or at least a nine-letter space. But between Vayigash and Vayechi, there is no space, a closure that is meant to direct us to pause and reflect upon the previous verses. In case you haven't noticed, the Hebrew naming of the biblical books and Torah sections are sourced from the literal beginning of each book and each parashah, which also expresses the figurative content of the reading. The English translations piggyback on this latter point and correlate to the conceptual themes surrounding the scripture, which, for Genesis, is about renewal. Parashat Vayechi opens up with the impending death of Jacob and the spiritual exile that will begin after his passing. This year, in the northern hemisphere where I reside, Vayechi is read after the winter solstice, after the darkest period of the year when the days are the shortest. This is what is occurring during the holiday of Chanukah, when this contraction of light is commemorated before a new bursting forth of light. Now, as the days grow longer and as we grow into this expansion of light, we are asked to reflect upon the actions and ideals that inspire us, that refresh our intentions, and that renew the spiritual aspects of our life that have been neglected. The death of Jacob and its concurrence with the conclusion of Genesis is a condition that is meant to help us think about and prepare for the physical and emotional trials that lay ahead. Our spiritual rejuvenation is paramount to the overcoming of these travails and the rushing forth of light. In this respect, Torah study, the human life cycle, and the Earth's natural cycles should be synergistic movements that parallel one another, which is the awe-inspiring premise that grounds the Torah in ecological principles. The opening of Parashat Vayechi is somewhat reminiscent of Parashat Chaye Sarah, in that the naming of the Parashah concerns a period of Jacob's life, but the contents of the Parashah are devoted to the events leading up to his death. But Vayechi, or he lived, points to the conditions in which Jacob lived in Egypt and the spiritual legacy and ideals that he secured through his children. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson of Righteous Memory, gave a teaching that split the 147 years of Jacob's life into three general phases. His first 77 years were spent in Eretz Yisrael in Tents of Study, where he was relatively sheltered from the trappings of a material life. These were followed by 20 years in Haran, working for Laban, growing a family, and amassing material wealth. And the third phase is characterized by his descent into Egypt and the 17 years that he spends in a true state of exile. The three phases encapsulate the three states of being that we all move through and experience in our lives, and these are 
sovereignty, struggle, and subjugation. Nachmanides, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, writes, quote, Everything that happened to the patriarchs is a signpost for their children. This is why the Torah elaborates its account of their journeys. They come as an instruction for the future, end quote. The phase of life that Jacob spent in Egypt is characterized by subjugation, whereby he was forced to recognize the authority of Pharaoh, who is described as a monarch of world power. But we all have times in our lives when we are faced with circumstances that are outside of our control, and we must learn how to navigate a sense of powerlessness. It is perhaps our refusal to heed to such moments that has got us into severe environmental trouble. Nature is incredibly powerful, and even something as simple as getting caught in a riptide can provide a bit of insight into this point. The main suggestion here, though, is that the environmental crisis has its roots in our desire to dominate and control natural forces. The introduction of invasive species to regulate ecosystem imbalances, the manipulation of weather patterns, and the genetic modification of various foods are just a few examples of forms of intervention that demonstrate this longing to control. But at the core of the solution to the environmental crisis is a willful subjugation on our part, in some instances, to the tremendous power of nature and to the earth. There are moments that call for us to recognize the futility of the penchant for control, or even the inclination to resist, which is why Jacob's descent into Egypt is a movement that can serve as a signpost for our environmental actions now. The greatest challenge in the world that is presently evolving has much to do with the environmental disorientation that is to follow in the wake of climate change. Weather patterns are changing, climate zones are shifting, and we are entering a phase of unprecedented patterns that are the cause of much confusion. The absence of patterns is a form of chaos, a form of exile, that must be navigated by prescribed times of subjugation. Those whom are living in the modern world have, in a sense, descended into Egypt. Parashat Vayechi begins with a request that Jacob makes to Joseph. Please, he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, please do not bury me in Egypt. For I will lie down with my fathers, and you shall transport me out of Egypt and bury me in their tomb. This is chapter 47, verses 29 to 30. Jacob asked of Joseph that when he passes, his body be brought to Eretz Yisrael and buried in the cave of Machpelah. Joseph does agree to this promise. Before Jacob gives a special blessing to Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's two sons. The blessing was special because it elevated Manasseh and Ephraim to the status of Jacob's sons, as tribal inheritors within the nation of Israel. Rashi states that, quote, This constituted a blessing for Joseph as well, because the mark of his success in maintaining his spiritual integrity in Egypt was that his sons, born on foreign soil, were worthy of such a lofty status in God's nation, end quote. But there is some switching of the hands that occurs during the blessing, and Ephraim, the youngest, is given the right-handed blessing of the firstborn. 
There is a bit of a perplexing incident at this point whereby Jacob wished to tell all his children about the end of days, when the Messiah would come, but Rashi comments that, quote, the divine presence deserted him, end quote. Jacob then proceeds to bless his sons, and he highlights the character and ability of each individual tribe that will be unique to them and their descendants. This moment is likened to Adam's naming of the animals at the beginning of time, because, like Adam, who understood each animal's role within the cosmos, Jacob also had the ability to foresee and assign to his sons their respective missions. After Jacob's death, he is then embalmed and is mourned by Egypt for a lengthy period. As an aside, embalming is an Egyptian custom and is forbidden in Judaism. There are explanations for why this occurred to Jacob, but let it suffice to say that one could argue that it falls under the theme of subjugation discussed previously and relates to how it is navigated with integrity and decency. Next, a burial procession with all the brothers leaves Egypt to head up to Israel. The Talmud relates that at this juncture in the Torah, a confrontation occurs with a sow over Jacob's right to be buried in the cave. After this, the parashah finishes with Joseph's passing at the age of 110, and he asks his brothers to take his body out of Egypt, although this only occurs many years later with the Exodus. And this concludes the book of Genesis. The ecological message for this week revolves around the blessings that Jacob gives to his children. It is important to mention that several of the blessings, such as those given to Judah, Zebulun, and Asher, relate the mission of the tribe to a geographical location and an agricultural purpose. Asher will grow olives, Judah will produce grapes and wine, and Zebulun settles by the seashores. The point here is that the roles of the tribes are tied to the notion that it is predestined that they will be custodians of their own land. Each tribe is given a specific task to manage and work with that land, which will contribute to the Israelites' ability to sustainably function as a civilization. The Levites are an exception to this rule because they are to become the priestly class and the tribe of Levi does not inherit any portion of the land of Israel. While they will serve God, of course, Jacob indicates in his blessing to Levi and Simon, who are taken as a pair, that due to their attack on the males of Shechem, that they both lost their right to have any authority over the nation, as a king would, for instance. Reuben was rebuked due to his relations with Bilhah, and Jacob makes it clear that his actions were, quote, hasty and reckless like fast-flowing waters, end quote. The next oldest, Simon and Levi, due to their preoccupation with the weaponry of violence, were unfit to succeed Jacob as rulers. The next in line was Judah, which is the tribe from which the Davidic monarchy arises. What I'd like to point out, though, is that Simon and Levi misused the spiritual tools of the sword and the bow. Jacob alludes to this when he states to Joseph, quote, I have given you Shechem, one more portion than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow, 
end quote. This is chapter 48, verse 21. The weaponry of violence that Simon and Levi used to attack the city of Shechem were considered traits that they got from a sow. A sow, as discussed in a previous commentary, was a bow hunter and was described as having an unhealthy propensity for killing. But in this instance, Jacob is using the terms sword and bow to refer to figurative names for spiritual weapons. The sword is equated to sharp wisdom and the bow with prayer. The ecological significance of this detail is that an improper relationship between hunting tools, that being the sword and the bow, and the act of hunting is what squanders the ability to have a meaningful relationship with the land. A sow loses his birthright, as do the older brothers, and they are therefore rendered undeserving of a position to gain access to the land. Shechem is additional territory given to Manasseh and Ephraim, by the way. The Levites, for instance, must rely on the tithes from the other tribes for their livelihood, a connection to the land that is contingent upon spiritual strength, not brute force. The fact that you can hunt and that you can wield a sword and a bow is irrelevant if those tools are not guided by a sincere spiritual practice and by the right mentality. This is a monumental point to take away from this parasha and is hopefully something worth pondering. There's a truly wonderful moment after the completion of a book of the Torah for a congregation to proclaim Chazak Chazak Venit Chazik, which means be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. I just thought I'd throw this in there because I find it uplifting. Congratulations, we finished Genesis. Thank you all for listening. That's all for now, and I'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.